Bible to Leviticus chapter 1. Um, I know that might sound a little intimidating. It feels a little intimidating to say that. Uh, just let me paint, a, before we read Leviticus chapter 1, let me um, paint just a really brief sort of uh, context for you here. Um, Leviticus picks right up sort of where Exodus leaves off. It almost seems like it's the same conversation, just keep continuing. Um, Exodus ends, as you, as you probably remember, with the tabernacle is constructed. The, the Israelites have, have just left Egypt. The tabernacle is constructed. Uh, they've received the Ten Commandments, and the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. Um, and Moses is having this conversation with God, and, and it seems to just keep right on going. It picks right up in Leviticus chapter 1, in which God begins to describe how uh, the Israelites are to worship him in this tabernacle. Um, and he begins with talking about the, the laws for burnt offerings, which is what we're going to read this morning. Um, and I just want to give a little disclaimer. Um, as you'll probably see throughout this passage, um, it's going to be a little bit earthy this morning, okay? So I, I'll just ask you to, to bear with me with that. All right, this is the, the word of God. L- let me read this for us. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar. That is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish. And he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. And he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat. And the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. And the priest shall bring it to the altar, and wring off its head, and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents, and cast it beside the altar on the east side, in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go to him and ask him for his help. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, you are the one who spoke light into darkness. Uh, You are the one who shined the light of the gospel in our hearts. And so, Lord, we call out to you today and ask for your help, that you would shine light on this passage, that you would speak to us from it. Uh, Lord, that you would lead us as a good shepherd, uh, lead us to the gospel, lead us to Jesus in this passage today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, when I was about 14 years old, uh, my family moved into a new house, okay? It was, uh, it's not a, it was a new house for us. It wasn't a brand new house, but uh, the family that had lived there before was an elderly couple, and the, the room that was my bedroom 
had been used as had been converted into sort of a quasi library. Okay, the, they had enjoyed reading, especially this elderly gentleman had enjoyed his retirement years reading a lot of books. And so we moved in. My my bedroom had like a whole wall of, of built in shelves, really nice, and and all and they even left some books on the shelves, books that they no longer wanted. And one of the sets of books they left it was this. It was like this Reader's Digest sort of mystery novel series from the 60s or something. And it was, like this, it was like 30 volumes, and each volume had like three mystery novels in it by different authors and on different topics and stuff. And so I remember as a, you know, maybe a sophomore in high school or something, I, I pulled some of these books off the shelf, and I read some of them. And, and, you know, just kind of figured out what is this huge collection of books on my wall. Uh, and, and I really began to enjoy the mystery genre. I enjoyed reading those books. It was kind of fun, right? It's fun to, to see these stories and, and to try to, you know, look for the clues and to try to figure out before the book tells you, you know, who the thief is or who the murderer is, you know, to try to figure it out yourself. Um, and it's really not just me that enjoys this. I mean, there, there are lots and lots of uh, mystery fans, right? You, you, lots of mystery books sell very well each year. There's lots of TV programs that, you know, are cop procedurals or, you know, all kinds of CSI, you know, trying to solve the crime scene or whatever. Um, those are very, very popular. Um, and so, you know, that it's kind of, it's just fun to watch those shows and to read those books and to try to crack the case and to look for the clues. And, you know, that's a little bit of, of what, maybe how we ought to read the Old Testament sometimes, right? As we're reading the Old Testament, uh, we're, we're sort of looking for clues. We're not looking to solve a crime or, or some scandalous thing like that. We're, we're looking for clues. We're looking for signposts to point us to the Savior, to point us to the Messiah, the, the Redeemer who was to come, um, who we know to be Jesus Christ. And so as we're reading a book, especially a book like Leviticus, which let's just be honest here, Leviticus has sort of a bad reputation, right? It's, it's viewed as being kind of tedious. It's viewed as being a pretty, you know, archaic and, and um, a little bit uh, barbaric, perhaps, even. And, and it's, if, if you've ever tried to do, like, one of those Bible, reading the Bible through in a year, uh, there's a good chance that you stopped in Leviticus, okay? It's the, grave, it's, it's the graveyard of many uh, well-intentioned Bible reading plans, okay? Uh, and so it, it's a, this would be a great book for us to sort of view, you know, looking for Jesus, looking for clues and signposts to point us to Christ, because Christ himself tells us in the New Testament that the law and the prophets are about him. That's what he says. That's how Jesus interprets the Old Testament. It's about him. And so this morning we're going to look uh, through Leviticus chapter 1, look at the altar of burnt offerings. We're just going to look for clues, look for signposts, things that will point us to Jesus, point us to the gospel, to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so uh, the first thing, we're just going to start with some of the more obvious ones. The first thing I want us to, to look at is the blood. Um, I want you to imagine with me that you are visiting, let's say that you're going back in time, you're visiting the camp, right, the Israelite camp, okay, you're walking through, there's all these tents, there's tons and tons of people, um, and you get to this, t- this tent in the middle of the camp, it is beautiful, right, it, it is, has beautiful colors, it is made of the finest materials, easily the most beautiful tent in the entire camp. And there's a courtyard, and, and you're like, man, this, this, is a, this looks amazing. And you sort of walk through the courtyard, and right in front of you, there's, there's, a, there's a even more beautiful and elaborate tent. But right in front of that, there's this bronze altar, and it is just covered in blood. And there's priests who are ministering at this altar, and they are just covered in blood. You know, what would your reaction be to, to walk into this scene? Um, I imagine we would be a little shocked. You know, Some of us would feel a little queasy. Uh, it, it would be sort of a, you know, to our 21st century sensibilities, it seems a little shocking, a little bit barbaric, doesn't it? 
Um, but I think that's probably what it looked like. It probably looked like a, a pretty big mess. Look with me at verse uh, 5, chapter 1. And this is referring to the, the person who brings the sacrifice. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And so there's, there's lots of sacrifices happening each day, even more so during certain celebration seasons and certain feast times. There would be tons and tons of animals being sacrificed. And there's lots of blood, and it's being flung around, and, and it, I imagine it would get pretty messy pretty quick. Um, but what does this communicate? What, what is this, this sort of right in front of the tent of meeting, right in front of the holy place, there's this bronze altar, there's this sort of this bloodbath there. What, what is that communicating to the Israelites, and what is it communicating to us today? Well, it's giving us a picture of what is required to approach God. What is required for sinners to be in a relationship with God? It's kind of giving us a picture of that. It requires, what does it require? It requires the shedding of blood. You know, we read in the book of Hebrews that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Um, Blood has to be shed. Well, why is that? Well, God is telling us uh, some very important things about himself here, right? He is telling us uh, that he is reminding the Israelites, reminding us that he is a holy God, uh, that he cannot even, he can't be in the presence of sin. He can't be in the presence of sinners like us unless there has been some, the shedding of blood. And the only way for sinners to approach God, to be in his presence, and, and that's what the tabernacle is for. Remember, the tabernacle is, this is God's dwelling place in the camp. This is where he dwells. If they want to, this, is, this is where they can go to be in God's presence. Um, the only way for them to go into there was to enter through the blood. And it, it's not just any blood, right? It had to be from a certain type of animal, right? We see in this, in this passage, there's three types of animals. We see that animals, there's bulls from the herd. There's uh, sheep and goats from the flock, and there's two types of bird that are allowed. But even, even more than that, there's other specifications. Uh, look with me at verse 3. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. And look down to verse 10. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish. A male without blemish. That is, what, that is the type of animal that is required for the sacrifice. So in order, to be able to, in order to be in a relationship with God, we must come through the blood of an innocent, right? The, the blood of an, of an animal without blemish. Uh, that's the only way. There, there was no back door, right? There was no secret entrance to the tabernacle. There was one way in, and the only way to get to God was to go through the blood. You could not just sort of slip in the back. There's no shortcuts. Uh, this was the only way. And so although many things have changed over the last several thousand years since Leviticus 1 was written, uh, since these events took place, and lots of change since then, obviously. But one thing that has not changed is the way that we are to approach God, the way that we uh, are to be in relationship with Him. We still must enter through the shed blood of an innocent, uh, the shed blood of a male without blemish or sin. And we know that today to be the Lord Jesus Christ. That is how we approach God. That is the only pathway to approach God, to be in His presence, to be in a relationship with Him, is to approach Him through the blood of of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the blood is our first clue. That's a pretty obvious one. Uh, it points us to Jesus very clearly. But there's more than simply just an animal's blood being shed uh, in this passage, right? This animal is functioning as, as something very important. This animal is functioning as a substitute. And that's our second clue. Our second point is a substitute. Look with me at verse 4. This is referring to the person who brings the, sac- brings the sacrifice. It says, He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. And it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. I, I think the intention here is pretty clear, right? That the person who brings this sacrifice, 
before they kill the animal, they're to place their hand on the head of the animal. Right? And this is, to, this is to identify the animal with the person who's bringing the sacrifice. This is to identify them. This is um, to show that he, this animal is going to be a substitute for him. In, in essence, what he is saying when he puts his hand on the head of this animal, what he's saying is, this is what I deserve. What, what's about to happen to this animal is what ought to happen to me. This is what I deserve for my sin. This is what I deserve for the way that I've lived. I'm the one who ought to be receiving this. But by placing his hand on the head of the animal, he's identifying his sin with that animal so it will make atonement for him. Um, and so not only is the person laying his hand on the animal, but he's also doing more than that. I, you know, I used to think that it was the priest who did the slaughtering all day long, but that's not the case. Um, look with me at verse 5 again. This is referring to the person who brings the sacrifice. It says, Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, shall, the priest, shall bring the blood. And so the person who brings the sacrifice is the one who has to do the slaughtering, the person who has to kill the animal. So uh, not only is he putting his hand on the animal to say to identify himself with it, but he's the one who actually deals the death blow to this animal. And so God is, is asking, he's, he's getting the Israelites to view him properly, right? They have to come through the blood of an innocent because he is a holy God. But he's also getting the Israelites, and, and as we read this passage, he's getting us to view ourselves properly, to, to look at this and say, this is what I deserve, right? This is a reminder of what um, I deserve for my sin. I'm the one who deserves to be getting this punishment. And the Lord, God gives us this very same reminder in the Lord's Supper, right? When we come to the Lord's table, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we see the bread and the cup, and it represents the broken, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. But, but there's many things that the supper sort of means to us and teaches us, but one thing is what, what we're seeing at the table is this is what I deserved. I'm the one that deserved to have my body broken, to have my blood shed, but Jesus stood in my place. Jesus was the substitute on my behalf. You know, and I think as we, if we as Christians keep this idea sort of in the forefront of our minds, if we, if we, if we keep this, this, this part of the gospel central to us, that this is what we deserve, that we deserve death for, for, for our sin, um, I think it really will change the way that we live. It will really change the way that we treat people. Um, you know, it, it will really, first it will really breed humility in us. You know, if you're constantly reminded that you've lived in such a way that someone had to die for you, uh, then, then it sort of, I think that would make you pretty humble. It's hard to be self-righteous when you're constantly reminded that, you know how I lived this week? Even on my best day, someone still needed to die for me. Uh, it's hard to be self-righteous when you are reminding yourself of that. And I, I think it's easy for us to be patient, you know, when we really meditate on how the Lord has been patient with us. Uh, it's easier for us to uh, have joy when we see what we deserved and what Jesus has done in our place. And so those are just a few of the ways that, that these, these truths can, can shape our lives and, and shape the way that we interact with others. So we see that there's a need to enter through the blood of an innocent. We see that we need a substitute to stand in our place. And our third clue, our third point this morning, is a pleasing aroma. You know, I always kind of crack up at, at TV commercials because it's always really funny. Like the, the way that they are, the product that they're selling and the way that they're trying to appeal, make that project, product, make that product appealing to us. Uh, and so, you know, the, you, you've seen these commercials where, you know, it's like, you know, 
a guy brings a bag of Doritos to a party, and everybody loves the Dorito guy. You know, it's like Doritos will give you friends or something. You know, uh, there, there, there's these commercials that you know will will tell us that you know you'll people will like you, and if you if you wear these clothes, if you use this product, then you know your wrinkles will just vanish away or things like that. You know, they 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 try to use uh, sort of sometimes it can be a very menial project, something very small, uh, but they try to act like it's going to revolutionize your life. You know, and I think a lot of, but a lot of advertisements, a lot of commercials, they sort of use this idea that, that and I think there's really something interesting, that at the, underneath all of these commercials, there's this idea of like, hey, if you use this project, if you use this product, you'll be accepted, okay? If you drive this particular car, then you're going to be respected in your community. If you wear this outfit, uh, then people will, uh, people will think you're the greatest thing since sliced bread. You know, if you use this product or whatever, uh, then it's going to really, people will accept you. People will like you. Um, people will be drawn to you. And although I think they're very, very wrong about their proposed solutions uh, to this acceptance, desire, this desire for acceptance we have, I think they're really onto something that, that deep down, I think that is what we all want, to be accepted, right? We, we all desire uh, to be, for someone to see us and to know us and, and to love us, right? For someone to accept us um, despite our flaws, to someone to accept us um, and to love us. Um, we desire this perfect love, right? We desire what Adam and Eve had in the garden, to be emotionally and spiritually stripped uh, and to be unafraid, to be unashamed of that. We desire this more than anything, I think, to be completely accepted by God. Um, and I think we see something like that hinted at in our passage. Look with me again at verse 3. He sa- it says, If this offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish, he shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. And so the promise that's being held out here is that, hey, if you, if you bring your sacrifice to the tent of meeting, you bring this particular sacrifice, the promise is that you will be accepted before the Lord. That is what we're being offered. That's what the Israelites are being offered. Despite the fact that he's supremely holy, despite the fact that this, these people deserved death just like we do, um, they will be accepted by God. For, uh, that's, what they're being, that's what they're being promised. But does it work? <clears throat> we'll keep that question in mind. And look with me at, verse, uh, look with me at the end of verse uh, 9. We see this, the second half of verse 9. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And look at the end of verse uh, 13. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And look at the very last verse of the chapter. A food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Um, so there's this refrain of, of this pleasing aroma, that this sacrifice is a pleasing aroma accepted by God. Now, I, I don't want to be gross here, but I want us to think about the different smells that you would experience if you were standing in the courtyard in this scene, okay? If you're standing right there next to the, the bronze altar, let's just think just for briefly, um, right before lunch, let's just think about some of the smells uh, that you would experience. So, well, first there's livestock, okay? And so... That's a whole host of smells that come along with that. I'll just leave. You, you, you've been around livestock, I'm sure, to, to know what I'm talking about. Um, but then there's also, there's dead animals, there's, there's dried blood. I mean, it's kind of a nasty scene, right? Um, and then, you know, I'm just going to say it, there's, there's the entrails, okay? Uh, you know, I remember the first time as a, as a boy when I saw a deer field dressed. Uh, it was left quite an impression on me. And uh, the, I, I think that the, that smell has never fully left my nostrils. Uh, it was a pretty... It's a pretty foul odor. And now keep in mind, on top of all that, keep in mind that they are burning these animals, okay? And according to the, this passage, they're burning all of it, okay? The, the, the entrails and the, the hair and everything is being burned on the altar. 
And I don't know about you, maybe I've, maybe I've just been misreading these passages or misunderstanding them my whole life, but I always thought, whenever it said, it's a pleasing, pleasing aroma to the Lord, I always sort of imagined that it was a really nice smell. I always imagined, like, you know, a side of beef cooking on the, on, on the altar or something. I always imagined, you know, this, like, savory smells. Like, oh, man, I bet that did smell good. Um, but when you really think about this passage, when you really look at it, they're burning everything. That, that had to be horrific. That had to be a, a nasty smell. And so why am I going to all this uh, labor to tell you about how nasty this smelled? Because I want you to see the contrast. I want you to see that in reality it was probably a pretty stinky ordeal, okay? But what does it say? How does God view this stench of this, of this sacrifice? It says three times in this passage and many other places in the Old Testament, it is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It pleased him. He was pleased by this smell. Okay, why is that? How is that possible? Well, because I think what we see here, we see several things, but I think what we see here is that God loves to forgive. That God loves atonement. He loves substitution. Uh, that he delights to show mercy. You know, sometimes the Old Testament has a really can have a bad reputation, right? If you talk to many people outside the church, sometimes people will say, well, I like the New Testament. is a God of love. But the Old Testament, man, just wrath and blood and anger and, you know, this vengeful God. I don't like the Old Testament at all. Um, but I, I think that's kind of a, I'm pretty sure that's a misreading of the Old Testament. Because right here, I think we have evidence that there's a God. He's holy. He, he can't be in the presence of sin. But he's the one who provides a method to come to him. He's the one that invites sinners into his presence through the blood. And also, he is the one who delights to forgive. He loves to forgive. And he is pleased when he forgives. Um, and so that's what uh, God delights to show mercy. And that's what we most desire to be forgiven, to be accepted by him, to receive that mercy. You know, and I think this aroma also pleased God. There's a big part of it is that because it points to Jesus. If you noticed in our, in our unison reading of Scripture from Hebrews 10, there's a moment it's referring specifically to the burnt offering in the fourth paragraph down there. It says, In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Wait a second. How can Hebrews say that God took no pleasure in burnt offerings, and yet right here we see that he says it was a pleasing aroma? The answer is because this is pointing to Jesus. Because this is a, a placeholder. This is sort of a, 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 a signpost pointing forward to the Messiah to come, pointing forward to the work that Jesus was going to do. And so when Jesus, who is a better high priest, a perfect high priest, and he is a better sacrifice, a perfect spotless lamb, when he is offering himself up on the cross for our sin, it is a beautiful thing. It is a wonderful thing, and it is a pleasing thing to God. And it's because of that that God accepts us. And so it's because of that that, that when we read this passage of this stinky sacrifice that God can say, that the Bible can say that it was a pleasing aroma to him because it points him for, it points us forward to his son, to the work that Jesus was going to do. So we see that we need the blood of an innocent. We see that we need a substitute because we're sinners. And we see someone who's, we need, we need someone whose life and death will be supremely pleasing to God on our behalf. And so I think we have a pretty full picture of the gospel here in Leviticus 1. Clearly these clues, these signposts pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's one more thing I want us to see this morning, and that is uh, the, the sign of the smoke. Uh, now, you may be thinking to yourself, hey, this passage doesn't mention smoke, and you'd be right. There's no mention of smoke in this passage. But there is mention of fire several times. And if I can reverse an old adage, I think we can safely say that where there's fire, 
there's smoke, right? Um, and so I want us to turn just a couple pages over to Leviticus chapter 6. And we're going to just briefly look at this as we wrap up today. Look at Leviticus chapter 6. And we're going to see something special about this fire and the smoke on the altar. And this is some further instructions about the offering of burnt, the offering the burnt offering the excuse me laws for the burnt offerings. Um, and so let's look at verse eight, chapter Leviticus six, verse eight. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering: the burnt offering shall be on the hearth on the altar all night until the morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it." And the priest shall put on his linen garment and put his linen undergarment on his body. He shall take up the ashes to which the fire has reduced the burnt offering on the altar and put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it and it shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. The fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. Three or four times in that passage, we're told that this fire on the burnt offering is to be kept burning continually. It's to never go out. It's to continually burn, never to go out. Um, and so, just imagine this with me. For, just think about this with me uh, for a moment. The, the priests were to keep this burning around the clock, okay? And the way that the, the camp was, was designed, the way that it was sort of laid out... It was kind of like a, the camp itself was sort of a big version of the tabernacle. You had the, the tabernacle was in the very middle, sort of like the Holy of Holies. Then you had the Levites, the Levite, the tribe of Levi was all around, their tents were all around the tabernacle. And then you had all the other tribes. So it's kind of like the three layers of the, of the tabernacle. The, uh, that's kind of what it looked like. So the tent of meeting, the tabernacle was right in the middle of the camp. And uh, this fire is burning all day long. Um, and it's in the center of the camp. And, and so I just imagine... No matter where you are in the camp, you could probably see... This is a pretty big altar, too. You could probably see smoke rising all the time coming off this altar, coming off this bronze altar, um, as serving as a reminder, a constant reminder uh, of the sacrifices, a constant reminder of, of you know, that, we need, that, that innocent blood must be shed for us to come into God's presence. You know, and I heard a pastor talk about this once, and he said something like this. He said, just imagine that, imagine that you live in Israel. Okay? You live in an Israelite camp. You're an Israelite. And imagine that you have just a terrible, awful, no good, very bad day, okay? Imagine that it's just a, a bad day spiritually, that you, your, your, your heart is just full of doubts, you were rude to your spouse, you're impatient with your children, you got into an argument with your neighbor, right? You, you may have lied to your neighbor or something, you just, you just had a rough day, it's just like everything fell apart and you just acted terribly to everyone around you. And just imagine that it's the middle of the night, you're feeling, still feeling bad about the way that you behaved. And you walk out of your tent, and you look up in the middle of the camp, and you see the smoke rising up to the stars. Smoke from this burnt offering, this burnt off, this off, altar burnt offering. How would, that, how would that make you feel in that moment? To see that smoke, to see that reminder of the altar after you just had this horrible day. You know, I think it would be something of a source of encouragement to you, right? Because there's still, though you've sinned, though you have done these bad things so you feel guilty you feel plagued by guilt and shame your conscience is eating at you through all that that there's still an invitation from god to to come into his presence there's still an offer from god to deal with your sin there's still an offer uh to to deal with this guilt um, through these sacrifices through the shed blood of an innocent now imagine with me a similar scenario but sort of the opposite okay imagine you're living in the israelite camp but imagine you just had a great day Okay, 
that you, uh, you were a good spouse, you were a great parent, you were encouraging to your neighbors, you had a great devotional time, you know, it's just been a wonderful day in every stretch of the imagination, okay? And you look up towards the center of the camp, and there's still that smoke rising up to the sky. And how would it make you feel on that day? Well, I, I think it would be a reminder to you that even on your best day, you still just can't, you can't just waltz into the tabernacle and go into the holy place, right? You still have to go through this blood. You still have to uh, go to this altar. This altar, you still need the blood of an innocent to be shed for you, even on your very best day, even on a great day for you spiritually. And how much better is it for us, right, that we don't have to, you know, thankfully there's no fire that Dr. Bob and I are keeping burning continually over North Point Church uh, to be as a reminder to you. We have it so much better that we can look into the Word and we see the cross, which functions the same way for us. The cross, which on our very worst day reminds us that there is atonement for sinners, that there is hope for sinners like us in the Lord Jesus Christ, that there is blood shed for our sins, uh, for the punishment we deserve. Someone stood in our place. Um, and yet on our very best day, when we you know, have a wonderful day, the best day of your life spiritually, we still look at the cross and we see, hey, you still need this. You're never above this. You're never, you never outgrow your need for the cross. You never outgrow your need for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, one of my favorite books is a book by Jerry Bridges, a popular Christian writer. You've probably heard of him. Um, he wrote a book called The Discipline of Grace. And he says this. He, he kind of encapsulates this whole, this whole idea in a, in a pithy quote. And let me read it to you. He says, Your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. So even on your very worst day of your life, you still, God can, God's grace can still reach you. And even on the best day of your life, you still need God's grace. You never outgrow that. And so this is how we can sort of approach the Old Testament. Um, the Old Testament is not painting a picture of an angry, vengeful God. Uh, okay, It's painting a picture of God, the Father of Jesus Christ, who loves to forgive, who is holy, who can't be in the presence of sin, but who provides a way for sinners to be his sons and daughters through his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And since, we, and since God loves to forgive, we can know that if we're trusting in Jesus, if we're resting in the work of Christ, we can know that we're forgiven. We can, know, we can, we can have no doubt about that, that the substitute who shed his blood for us, that by that work we're forgiven. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, as we see in Romans chapter 8. So as we leave here today, let's do so with full knowledge in our, in our hearts, in our hearts and in our minds. Let's do so with full knowledge that the blood of an innocent has been shed for you. And, and it's more powerful than the blood of any, any goat or any sheep, any, any uh, bull. And that you have a substitute who gave himself up for you and has pleased God perfectly on your behalf so that you can be accepted by God when you trust in him. And may we live in the reality of these truths each and every day. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have provided a, a way for sinners to find salvation, a way for sinners to come to you, uh, not just to, to be in a good relationship with you, yes, but even more so to be your sons and daughters, that we are adopted into your, into your family, that we can call you Abba Father, um, not because of anything we've done, but because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf. Lord, help us to, uh, we pray that you would write these truths on our hearts and help, us, uh, help them to shape us and change us into the people that you desire us to be. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.